Welcome to the Frontline Gastroenterology Podcast, based on the paper Individualised Consent for Endoscopy Update on the 2016 British Society of Gastroenterology Guidelines Published online in Frontline Gastroenterology in February 2023 My name is Dr Philip Smith, Deputy Editor of Frontline Gastroenterology and Social Media Associate Editor an honorary consultant gastroenterologist at the Royal Liverpool Hospital, Liverpool, United Kingdom. And I extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Simon Everett, who's a consultant gastroenterologist at the Leeds Teaching Hospitals NHS Trust in Leeds, United Kingdom. And he is also the British Society Gastroenterology, ERCP and EUS Quality Improvement Lead. Dr. Everett is the senior author in this paper as well. Dr. Everett, thank you so much for joining me today to do this podcast on this very important area. Which leads me on to my first question, if I may, for the podcast. Can you explain the background to this paper in terms of the reason why it was requested and commissioned? Well, uh, thank you very much, Phil, uh, for inviting me to do this podcast. It's um, a great pleasure, really, to have the opportunity to talk about this manuscript and publication. Uh, I'd like to start, before I talk about the areas that you want me to, just to say thank you and pay tribute to my co-authors, Nick Burr, Helen Griffiths, Ian Pentman and Andrew Axon, because this is very much a a joint effort, uh, as I'm sure we'll probably come to in due course, but uh, but I wanted to pay tribute to them. So, you ask around the, the background and the rationale for this paper and how it was commissioned. As you have alluded to, the British Society of Gastroenterology guideline on consent was uh, authored and published in 2016. And the main reason that was brought out then was in response to the Montgomery ruling, which occurred in 2015. And in fact, a number of societies uh, produced their own guidelines in response to that. Now, that ruling was new at the time. And since then, our understanding and appreciation of the significance of that ruling has has matured. And um, I think it has become much more uh, embedded in clinical practice overall. And, and the consequence of that is that in 2020, some two or three years ago now, the GMC published updated guidelines on consent generally. So the, the, these guidelines relate to all forms of consent for procedures, whereas obviously the BSG guideline is just for endoscopy. And, and in that uh, document, they're very, very explicit and rightly so about the need to individualise consent, in other words, um, tailor a discussion with the patient according to their own personal needs and wishes. Um, and, And it was in consequence of that that the GMC raised dialogue with the BSG, um, asking whether or not the original uh, publication and guideline in 2016 went far enough in terms of its... um, guidance in relation to the Montgomery ruling. And after various uh, conversations and discussions, it was felt probably uh, that it didn't and that some supplementary guidance was required in order to 
bring the BSG's position in line with the general position of, of the GMC. So that was really why it was felt that there was some updated guidance needed. And the point being that this is updated additional guidance, not um, used in to replace the guideline of 2016, but to add to and supplement it. And um, these conversations led to a president's bulletin, which was published in November 2021, which again steered colleagues towards individualizing consent and breaking things down into low risk, high volume and higher risk, lower volume procedures. And, and that uh, bulletin was was quite explicit in the need to individualize the process, but also that further guidance would ensue. And then the final piece of the jigsaw is that a very um, prominent coroner's inquest occurred in uh, 2021, the second half of 2021, into some ERCP-related fatalities. And without going into that in detail, one of the conclusions from that inquest was that um, there were issues in that particular trust around the consenting process and the need to individualize that consent process uh, and and that um the output from that inquest what's called a regulatory 28 uh, reg 28 was sent through to the british society and also the royal college and it was felt on the back of all of these events that some additional updated guidance was required and which is what has led to um this paper that's being published in in frontline Thank you, Dr. Everett. That's uh, that's really clear um, and, and very detailed. So thank you for that. So can you explain how the legal frameworks have uh, influenced this update? Yes, but by all means. So as I've alluded to, really the, the one legal framework that is referred to in this update and, and we keep coming back to is the Montgomery ruling. I've mentioned the coverage inquest. That hasn't added anything to it. it it's just crystallized i think in many people's minds uh, the importance of the ruling now we do go through the ruling in a, a, a mild degree of detail in, in the paper but just to to remind our audience the montgomery ruling was published in 2015 in relation to a obstetric case in which an expectant mother who had diabetes gave birth to a child who had shoulder dystocia and the delivery was complicated by dystocia and then subsequent hypoxic brain injury. And the ruling was that the consultant had withheld information to the mother because the consultant's view was that she estimated the risk of serious injury uh, to be small, whereas the Uh, judgment was that regardless of uh, the consultant's view uh, it was important that the mother was informed of all possible risks that might have influenced her judgment so um, the supreme court uh, in relation to the montgomery ruling held that a clinician has a duty of care to ensure that a patient is aware of any material risk of an intervention Uh, now what do they mean by material well um that is defined as whether a reasonable person in that patient's position would be likely to attach significance. Now, the key to that is, of course, that it's a reasonable person in that patient's position. So that 
will differ from one person to the next. And that is why we fall back on this concept of individualization, because a different patient in a different position might attach different significance to risk. And that is why it is important for uh, whenever um, talking to patients about risk and consent, that we try and understand what they would attach significance to in their circumstance. The way council explains uh, it to us as a group and in, in our document is that it's a little bit like um, a, a contract whereby we are asking a patient to adopt and accept a series of risks and consequences. And the only way we can ask that patient to adopt and accept those risks and consequences is by ensuring that they are fully informed of them. Otherwise, they cannot accept risk if they don't know what the risk is. And that's why every patient has a right to know what the risks and consequences are of the procedure uh, that, that they are undertaking. Um, this is very well illustrated in one of the paragraphs of the ruling. And if you, if you don't mind, Philip, I'll just read it out because I think it's quite an important paragraph. This is where the ruling states that instead of treating patients as placing themselves in the hands of doctors and then being prone to sue their doctors in the event of a disappointing outcome, treats them so far as possible as adults who are capable of understanding that medical treatment is uncertain of success and may involve risks, accepting responsibility for the taking of risks affecting their own lives and living with the consequences of their choices. So this embeds the principle that this is a, a joint decision between patient and clinician, but that the patient can only adopt that responsibility if they are fully aware of the circumstances as it applies to them. So, so this is the legal background and this is what is being embedded in our guidance. Thank you, Dr. Everett. Those uh, concepts are um, quite difficult necessarily to understand straight away, but uh, I think you've made them very clear. So could could I now ask you, why is it important for gastroenterologists and hepatologists to be aware of the recommendations? Certainly. Well, I think the, uh, the first thing I'd like to say is that this is a document not just for gastroenterologists and hepatologists. The, 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 the point of of endoscopy in particular, and different to many other surgical procedures, is that we are the recipient of referrals from from other specialties. So we're hopeful that anyone involved in uh, referring for endoscopy would would um, read these recommendations. And it is for all professionals involved in gastroenterology, hepatology, and endoscopy. Uh, namely nurses, uh, specialist nurses, general practitioners and referrers uh, of all sorts. In response to the question of why is it important, well, I think I could say this in, in uh, very simple terms, that this is the law, and this is the law in respect of how we are expected to practice, and therefore it is clearly essential in the same way that, that I would expect an architect to know the law about architecture, I would expect doctors to know the law about the area of medicine in which they practice. So knowing the law and understanding the law will reduce your risks of complaints and will also reduce your risk of litigation. And this, of course, is becoming more prominent and common than the day. But I think there's a second 
perhaps even more important reason is that it's certainly my view that good consent practice is simply about good medicine, that tailoring decisions in relation to treatments, particularly in the days of automated pathways and MDTs, is all about tailoring investigations and treatment to individual patients and choosing what is right for that person. And really all that we're trying to do is to provide a framework on which people might try to do that. Because of course, individualizing things, having conversations with people takes time. And that's difficult within our, our, our current constraints within which we work. So I think it's merely about saying that we think this is important, that somehow you have to conjure up the talent through negotiation with your, your trusts um, to do this effectively. And, and if you can, then that's going to result in a better outcome for your patients, which is medical uh, and endoscopy practitioners, which is something we would, would all agree we want. So it would lead to better patient satisfaction and better outcomes in the end if, if we stick to these principles. Thank you again. Very, very clear. Um, can I ask you um, uh, to uh, very briefly give an overview of how you set about forming the recommendations in this paper? Uh, by all means. So the first thing to say is that this is a fairly targeted set of guidance. We, the, the 2016 um, document is broad in that it deals with, with large numbers of scenarios. Here we're just focusing in on patients with capacity. Uh, we're not dealing with matters relating to capacity assessment. And we're dealing on matters related to individualization and the consent process. It seemed when we were asked to address this issue that there are two issues to attend to. On the one hand, it's evident and, you know, the coroner's inquest uh, alludes to this, that we need to individualize consent and discussions in the context of increasingly complex procedures that, that endoscopy uh, is now offering. But on the other hand, it remains the fact that a large proportion of endoscopy is uh, low risk, high volume, and that we didn't want to be overly burdening people with unnecessarily time-consuming processes where that might in fact lead to harm through delaying necessary procedures. So thinking about things in that way, we felt that um, we would needed to come up with a series of questions that relate to those broadly separate scenarios of high complex, high risk procedures and low complexity, low risk, but higher volume procedures. So we set about dividing things up in that way. We look, then looked at the processes of endoscopy referral and consent from start to end. And on the back of that, devised a number of questions, what we've called key questions, that were circulated amongst the uh, authors. We all agreed that these were reasonable questions. Uh, and then um, two of the authors, myself and Dr. Burr, pulled together the text of the recommendations. And th this is um, the format that they are within the document. It should be pointed out, this isn't a full BSG guideline, which requires a different 
level of rigor. And of course, when one comes to consent, there isn't an evidence base on which to base this. This is um, opinion, but opinion based on law, which is why we had a legal counsel involved. And therefore, we didn't feel we needed to adopt the full guideline process that is otherwise required. Nonetheless, we had full consensus amongst the authors and um, subsequent recommendations were submitted to BSG Endoscopy Committee and the CSSC Committee uh, and were approved by both committees before submitting to Frontline. Thank you. Very, very clear and rigorous process, it sounds like, as well. The paper has eight recommendations. Could you briefly just talk through the, the very main highlights? I don't expect you to go through in any great detail all of them. Uh, but by all means, um, and with many guidelines and guidance, as people focus in on the recommendations, and understandably so because uh, life is busy. But I really would recommend that people read the text around the recommendations because there's a lot of other information in there and, and context that, that could help support um, what is really meant in these recommendations. Um, the first three questions and recommendations really relate to general principles. So um, the first question is around what do we mean by uh, individualized consent? And that's defined in the first um, recommendation. And then in two and three, we split it into patient-related factors and procedure-related factors. So uh, for, for patient-related factors, we refer to taking into account the patient's symptoms, their history, and their risk factors for a specific procedure. And then when we talk about individualizing uh, consent for, for procedure-related factors, we then move into not just the generic risk of that procedure, but also um, how the risk relates to that uh, procedure in relation to exactly what is being planned um, for that patient. We then move on to um, question four, which refers to the completion process. In other words, the signature. And people spend a lot of time worrying about uh, that. Um, we felt that given that the demands that were being placed, particularly for complex procedures that required individualization of risk that we needed to spell out that the person who was confirming consent in other words the person who's signing the form really needed to have an in-depth understanding of that so that would more likely than not be someone who actually performs the procedure uh, whereas for more straightforward lower risk procedures it would be more common to delegate that to someone who doesn't necessarily perform the procedure but has been trained to um to do to to assist in the consent process and we also felt that it was important to clarify that um the space in which this final conversation occurs is one that is non-threatening and confidential and it, whereas in the past it's just been stated that it mustn't be the endoscopy room we feel that it's actually important to specify that there needs to be privacy and dignity and the patient needs time and space to um, make their decision. We then um, move on to questions five, six, and seven, which are splitting the recommendations into lower risk, high volume procedures, and then six and seven, which are the higher risk, uh, low volume procedures, um, where we've split them into 
elective and urgent procedures. So for lower risk procedures, um, we're recommending that patients can receive uh, patient-specific information in the form of leaflets or whatever else, but that there needs to be an opportunity for further discussion if required. Whereas for higher risk procedures, um, we're very clear that um, the patients must have access to really quite detailed information about risks, um, but not not only risks, but also the alternatives, because these days there are many different options for treating conditions and the patients must be aware of what those alternatives are. Uh, we're recommending careful selection of cases and also MDT discussion. Um, and then finally, for the question seven, we're talking about the urgent and emergency setting, um, suggesting that um, patients, given the complexity of these discussions, barring the serious and life-threatening emergencies, patients should really be adequately informed before they come down to the endoscopy unit for the procedure. The message we're trying to get across is that it's a much more difficult decision to make when the patient sat in front of you expecting a procedure to decide whether or not it's appropriate to proceed than making that decision in advance of them attending. And then finally, our final question is around patient selection and vetting for appropriateness. And I think this is probably the first time this has been brought into a consent forum, but it, it's very important. We make the point that you can't consent for a procedure if the procedure is inappropriate in the first place. So we feel that it's very, very important that any endoscopy request from the basic diagnostic to a more complex interventional procedure such as the RCP is adequately reviewed to ensure that the procedure is actually indicated. So that's a, a brief summary of the recommendations. Thank you. Is there any other content in your paper you'd like to draw to the reader's attention? I was thinking uh, about the table on risk stratification, which may be important for people to read. Uh, thank you, Phil. Yes, um, as, as alluded to earlier, I do think that it's important that people read all of the text of the paper. And there are some interesting additional sections. We've already talked about the section, the background on legislation that I would draw people's attention to. I would also um, suggest they read the seven principles of informed consent from the GMC, which are increasingly being referred to in legal cases, and particularly uh, principle four, which talks about the fact that doctors must try to find out what matters to patients so they can share relevant information about the benefits and harms of proposed options and alternatives. There is a section on the language of um, consent and that we no longer refer to taking consent. It's more, uh, it's more an issue that the patient gives their consent rather than we take it. And therefore, through the document, we refer to seeking and obtaining and the patient giving. And then finally, as you have mentioned, I think one of the key uh, areas is the table, the risk stratification uh, table. Uh, and thank you for bringing that up. And that's hopefully a framework that people can use to help um, guide their conversations. So we, we divide things into uh, two columns, procedure and patient-related risks, and then general and individualized. So it forms a, a form of a grid. So for the procedure risks, obviously, there's the general risk of the underlying procedure. But individualizing that, it might be that we're 
tackling something more complex in that patient, such as a polypectomy. So we have to adjust the risk according to that specific procedure. And then um, from the patient's point of view, the general issues would be their fitness for an endoscopy, their comorbidities, what medications they're taking. But then their, their individual risk might include their, their personal risk factors. For example, if they've had prior surgery that would alter the anatomy uh, and different procedures will have different specific risk factors. And then the final thing in the patient column is what their specific preferences or concerns are in relation to the procedure and outcomes, whether they have uh, certain expectations, what has happened before, have they had bad experiences before. All of these need to be taken into consideration. And then the final issue um, is that it's not just the risk of a complication occurring, but the risk what happens if a complication should occur and the consequences. So, for example, a proliferation, if they're elderly and frail, would that likely be fatal? And this, again, needs to be drawn into the risk evaluation that is included in that table. So I think that's something people should refer to. The other uh, issues that need to be really thought about carefully when discussing informed consent is the indication for the procedure. So how um, necessary is it? And the alternatives. There are many non-invasive uh, alternatives to, for example, colonoscopy, such as uh, stool samples or maybe uh, colon capsule or CT scanning. And patients need to be aware of what their alternatives are. At the other end of the spectrum, if one's performing an invasive therapeutic procedure, so maybe, for example, a POEM procedure for achalasia, that patient needs to be aware of what their alternative therapies are. So I think we do need to not just focus on risk, but indications and alternatives. And again, these very much need to be individualized. Thank you. I completely agree. Um, you briefly touch on e-consent in your paper. And given that we've just been through the COVID-19 pandemic and many NHS trusts are moving towards paperless patient records, it does seem like this is potentially the future of consent. Or, or does it? What are the real pros and cons of this, do you think? Yeah, thanks, Phil. That, that's it, It's a very good question and, and one that is likely to become uh, more and more common and e-consent is clearly potentially ha has a lot to offer but has a number of limitations and um, it was actually reviewed by the NHS HRA in respect of being used for research and they've made quite quite a number of recommendations in in relation to that and there are a number of validated platforms of e-consent for research but I think it's important to stress that none of these have been validated for clinical use and we have to be aware of the limitations. One of the limitations of course is, is if something is being done remotely is we need to be certain that the person who is completing the form is actually the person who would be undergoing the procedure and there's there's quite a lot of complexity as to how one would do that so that's that's the first anxiety around it. The second anxiety is that potentially any sort of electronic uh, or digital platform could discriminate against people in uh, maybe the later years of their life or people who don't have access to such um, resources. So we have to be very careful to, to not discriminate against those people and to ensure that there are alternative platforms. 
The other issue is that we really mustn't apply too much significance to um, the process. I think there's a danger in saying, well, if we've got an electronic signature and if we can be sure that it's the right person that signed it, then all is fine and dandy. Well, the reality is that it's the same, that the same issues crop up, that an electronic digital platform does not really facilitate an individualized discussion. And um, really, it's that that we're trying to stress through this document. So yes, it does provide an opportunity to, to allow patients access to information and that it, it's possible to validate the patients have, have read that information. So there are advantages to it. But certainly in the HRA document, they make the point that an interview was still required prior to patients commencing research, even if they're using e-consent platforms. And we would say the same thing prior to any endoscopic procedure, that just because somebody has ticked a box on an e-consent platform does not obviate or absolve the practitioner for the need for dialogue or discussion with the, the patient. So a lot of caution is going to be needed in how e-consent platforms are used. I think they will be incorporated, but people are going to have to think very carefully about how they incorporate them into their practice and not assume that just because someone has uh, ticked a box on an e-consent platform that that constitutes properly formed uh, consent and, and um, a lot of thought is going to need to go into this and none are validated at the present time. Thank you very much Dr Everett um, for those answers uh, and for doing this podcast today. I think our listeners will find that really really interesting. Congratulations again on your paper being published in Frontline Gastroenterology. Congratulations to yourself and of course your co-authors. To our listeners, I'm sure you have enjoyed this, uh, listening to this today. If you want to read the paper in full, just underneath this podcast, there's a link that you can click on that will take you directly to the paper. And I strongly advise you to read that paper. It's a great paper. And of course, please do join us again in the future for further Frontline Gastroenterology podcasts. Many thanks for listening. Thank you.